0: Welcome to another inspirational message from The Chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au Hi there, my name is Brian, and I'm part of the preaching and teaching team here at The Chapel Collective. Well, we're in week two of our series on the book of Galatians. And what we're doing is in our weekend messages, we might take a thought or a, a verse from the passage that we're up to and then launch off that into uh, a topical message around issues that we might be facing in everyday life. In our midweek studies, which would really love you to just maybe Um, flick off Netflix uh, on a night this week and either FaceTime a friend or get your family together and work through the midweek study to actually really engage with the passage that we're looking at. And then in our daily devotions, we're going verse by verse and really getting the most out of the book of Galatians that we can. It's all available via the QR code at the bottom of the screen or the link uh, on our socials. Just hit on Galatians and you'll have everything that you need. Why do we encourage this? Well, we actually do believe that the Word of God is living and active. I know for me myself that if I go without the Word of God for a couple of days even, it's just so much harder for me to live the life that I know I'm meant to live. Whereas if I'm regularly engaging in the Word of God, things happen more naturally. I I can only put it down to God's Word because it's nothing essentially that I'm doing. Uh, So I would love that to be all of our story that we regularly engage with the Word of God. So today, being that this next section of Galatians super autobiographical, we're going to read out a large chunk of scripture so you can follow along on the bottom of the screen or just listen. Uh, But really, it's just Paul telling the story of his experience. Um, Now, as you follow along, you might hit some concepts that are a little bit unfamiliar to you. One of them is Judaism. That's simply Jewish practice. And Jews were the people who believed and in fact were um, the the family of God, the people of God. Uh, Then there's the concept of Gentiles. Gentiles is anyone who is a non-Jew. So that would be the majority of people tuning in today and, and certainly me, myself. And then it was seen that they were outside the family of God. Uh, But Peter, who was someone who had actually walked with Jesus, who had followed Jesus and been with him for his three years of ministry on earth. He had the revelation uh, via a vision that the gospel, the good news about Jesus was to go beyond the Jews into all the earth. And so um, he, he kicked that off. But Paul is really the person who took that message around everywhere. However, because it started with the Jews, what had happened was that there was this attempt at syncretism, which simply means that they trusted in Jesus, but then added Jewish practices in on top of that. And that is what Paul is writing to and speaking about. So let's take up what is happening in Galatians chapter one, verse 11. This is Paul speaking. I want you to know, brothers and it also means sisters, but we're talking about the way that they used to write, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it from revelation by Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism, but on many Jews my own age, and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. 14 years later i went up again to jerusalem this time with barnabas i took titus along also i went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that i preach among the gentiles but i did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that i was running out or had run my race in vain yet not even titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a greek this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in jesus christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, the Jews. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by the hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That was a lot for Paul to say to the apostle Peter in front of everyone that was there at the time. Why? Why did he feel so strongly about this? Because what Paul had been saved from equipped him for what he had been saved for. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we all have history. And Lord, we all have a worldview that we grew up in. And we all have experiences. And Lord, you knew that we would have those. So when we were saved and we're so thankful, Lord, for those of us that have made the decision to follow you, we're so grateful that you saved us. Lord, you saved us for something and it was in light of our history, not in spite of it. So God, I pray that you would enable us and help us to see where we're equipped to be saved for something, not just from something. In Jesus' name we pray. I pray that everyone would have that enlightened to them this today, whenever they're watching. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you're watching today and you've not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, you're going to hear some inspiring testimonies, not the least of which is the one that we just read. And I hope that you'll be able to just let these experiences and these testimonies wash over you uh, because it's testimony time today. And and they're inspiring, they're profound, um, and and they're really great testimonies. Uh, And if you're already following Jesus, I hope that you will see... That you have 100%, you, yes, you, that you've been saved not only from something but for something. So, the story that we read just now is obviously about Paul. Paul, by necessity, consistently has to address people in his letters about people adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simply we are saved through faith by grace. We're saved through our faith in Jesus by the grace of God. And it's nothing that any of us could do. So Paul is essentially saying to those people who would add to the gospel, he, he says in Philippians, in the book of Philippians, he outlines, he's like, you reckon that Judaism is super important. I'll tell you about how Jewish I am. Let me testify. He says, you want to go on about being good according to the requirements of Judaism? Well, listen to me. He says, I uh, was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm not some after, after job, afterthought job where, oh, we better get that done. No, no. I'm according to the law. I got the procedure done at the correct time. He then goes on and says, I- I'm an Israelite. And I'm not just an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not some Hellenistic or Grecian Jew that had to, you know, be inculcated or uninculcated. I'm, I'm legit. I am the OG of the Jews. He says, if you want to talk about law and how good we are in terms of knowledge of the law, I'm a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee. That's how good I am. If it comes to the Jewish faith, I'm like an Olympian in terms of bloodline and learning. I've got it all down pat. And then he says, you want to talk about zealousness. You want to talk about fired up. I'll tell you how fired up I was. I killed people. I killed people to preserve the purity of the Jewish faith. That is how much I cared about it. I was like an, a jihadist. That's who I was. And then he goes on to say, that I it all as nothing. In fact, in the King James, he says, it's all poo to me. It's all a big load of poo. He says, I only want to know Jesus. And that's what I resolve to do. And that's what I continually want to do. I want to let all of that go. I count it all as loss just to know Jesus. It all mattered to me before, but now I'm repelled by it. And Paul gets a bad rap in the modern day wokeness of our world. He gets called anti-female. He gets called anti-gay. He gets called pro-slavery. He gets called all of these crazy things which as we look into the day that he was writing into it is just craziness to even assume that any of those things are true you see he he he, he tells people back then, and actually gets the name man-hater because of it. He tells people that we have to um, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, revolutionary teaching. He tells the elders that to, they're to be the husband of one wife, and he teaches monogamy in Christian marriage. Back then you had men who uh, they had their wife for procreation, you had their mistress to shower love upon, and that was their love relationship, and you had prostitutes for sexual desires they were like, Paul is a man hater. He's making us do things that we never thought we had to do in this Gentile pagan kind of audience. He, he, he talks about to people who have slaves of both sexes for their needs, for whatever they might desire. And Paul brings a revolutionary message to these people. Is it, Does it go as far as what we would have liked him to go? No, of course not. But it sets them on a trajectory, an upward trajectory of equality. And Paul comes out of a system that is not for equality whatsoever. He would have grown up praying the prayer every morning, God, thank you that you didn't make me a Gentile, that you didn't make me a slave and that you didn't make me a woman. But he comes out of that system and then teaches against it and teaches these beautiful truths. When he's radically saved from this system of legalism, hierarchy, dominance, he becomes a proponent for freedom through the spirit, for equality, for lifting up the vulnerable. And thank God, thank God he has a crack of Peter. Peter. Because otherwise through people pleasing, it could have all crumbled there right at the start. All you men, you'd all be needing operations. And all us women, we'd all be silent and we could get divorced um, for burning a loaf of bread. Some of you men might be thinking, I'll have the operation if it means that all that follows. Well, read your Bible and be changed by it. <laughs> Farrah writes these profound words. Not William James Farah, leading Australian agronomist and wheat breeder, uh, founder of Farrah Memorial High School. No, biblical scholar Farrah writes this. The dealer of the death wound to the spirit of Phariseeism was a Pharisee. This is what he says. It has often happened that the destroyer of a creed or system has been bred and trained in the bosom of the system, which he was destined to shake or destroy. (laughs) Stop. It's hammer time. That needs to just sink in for a moment because it's true of Paul. It's not just true of Paul. It's true throughout history. Let me give you three testimonies from history. There were heaps but I had to stop somewhere and so the first is from the 1400s a man named martin luther martin luther was an augustinian monk as a monk initially he spent a lot of time in fasting long hours of prayer uh, lots of pilgrimage and, and heaps of confession In fact, he spent so much on those things that his mentor encouraged him, hey, spend more time thinking, uh, spend less time thinking about your sin and the depravity of your own nature and think more time thinking about the goodness of Jesus Christ. And as that happened, then something began to happen in Luther. As he looked at the church system that he was a part of, he saw that that there was corruption and that the gospel and, and salvation was being used as a weapon for power and control rather than a free gift for all. He, he was so incensed at the selling of indulgences, which was um, the Catholic Church saying you can get your dead relative out of purgatory or promoted to heaven from wherever if you will pay money to the Catholic Church. They were, they were saying this because they needed to pay off their cathedrals. Well, Luther is incensed at this practice. He goes after the Pope. He says, the Pope is as wealthy as any crassus. Why on earth would the Pope not pay for the cathedrals? Why are we asking the poor um, and and exploiting the poor in order to get this done? This was a saying back in the day. It was, um, it says, as soon as a coin into the coffers rings, the soul from purgatory into heaven springs. I had a saying. Cling, cling, oh, there's a soul gone from purgatory. They're exploiting the poor in this way. So Luther begins to speak out against it. He gets hauled before a legate on the Pope's behalf and they end up in a yelling match. Luther just gets excommunicated from the church because he won't back down on any of it. And being excommunicated from the church then means being excommunicated from heaven. It means that you're sent into hell. He said, I can't take it back. Every Christian is their own confessor. They don't need to have a priest to go before God. Now, the legacy of Luther today is that there's between 800 million and 1 billion Protestants, people who know the freedom of being able to boldly approach the throne of grace to find mercy in their time of need themselves and not through anyone else. The system he was a part of equipped him to be saved for something. Fast forward a couple of Hundred years. Etienne, a mathematician who is, has a son who's a child prodigy in mathematics. Pascal, at 17, writes an essay on conic actions. Essai pour Someone who was quite envious of this rising star was the French rationalist and mathematician Rene Descartes. At 21, Pascal invents the calculator. By the time he's 30, he's invented the syringe and the hydraulic press. However, this scientific, rational, logical mind, having had a season of cynicism, um, goes on to write an an apologetic, a defense of the Christian faith, starting with the premise, man is infinitely more than man. So he's growing up, or he's amongst this enlightened group of science, of maths, of being able to explain the galaxy with all those things. And he says, no, 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 man is more than man. There's something more. This is what he writes. The man without grace is an incomprehensible mixture of greatness and abjectness, meaning they both have this desire for greatness and this potential for greatness, but they're also miserable and wretched. Uh, They're incapable of truth or reaching the supreme good to which their nature nevertheless aspires. A religion that accounts for these contradictions, which Pascal believed philosophy and worldliness just couldn't do. He says it's that kind of faith is to be venerated and loved. Something famous that he's often quoted for flies in the face of scientific proof and rational thought. It's called the wager. And he came up with it. He says the cynic should punt on the wager because if they die and they believe in Jesus Christ, then the worst thing that can happen is they go down to the dust. But if they die and believe in Jesus Christ, and the punt was true, then they inherit eternal life rather than eternal death. So this man who was saved from a very rational thought, scientific mind, is saved for the idea who says this. He's a genius, mathematician, former cynic, logical, rational in London. And he says that trust in Jesus is something that happens through the heart and not something that happens through reason. He was saved from something and he was saved for something. Fast forward another hundred years to a man named John Newton. John Newton began to work on merchant ships at age 11. At 17, he was conscripted into the navy where he tried to desert and he was flogged eight dozen times in front of the whole ship. That's 96 times. Humiliated, he transfers to a slave ship and he doesn't get along with the crew. So in Sierra Leone, they dump him with a slave trader and he actually ends up a slave himself for the slave trader's wife, who treats him as badly, this African woman, as she treats all her other slaves. His dad asks a ship captain to keep an eye out for him. And so this ship captain, when he gets to Sierra Leone, finds him, rescues him, brings him back. And uh, off the coast of Ireland, that ship begins to sink. John Newton cries out to God for mercy and the storm dies down. From that point, he decides to put his faith and trust in God Uh, but, But that sanctification, that working change of God in his life takes a little bit of time. He immediately gives up swearing, gambling and drinking, which is no small thing for a sailor. But he continues on in the slave trade. Even when he stops sailing, he continues to invest in the slave trade. But sometime after that, he fully surrenders his life to Jesus Christ and becomes a minister. Young men and women of England come to him and struggling with their faith. And one such young man was William Wilberforce, who was struggling and wanted to quit the Parliament. And John Newton encouraged him, "No, no, just serve God where you are." And you might know that William Wilberforce was key in the abolition of the slave trade. Uh, John Newton himself wrote to every single MP, and um, as and spoke out against what happened on those m- passages across the sea. This is what he said, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I once was an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. What humility did he have to have to write that to all the MPs of the nation? He was saved from something and then he was saved for something. Key abolitionist. No wonder that man was able to write amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. A man who had committed such horrible atrocities needed the grace of God to be set free, saved from something, saved for something. Four lives dramatically and drastically changed by the grace of God. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you? What, what are you saved for? I just want to give you three things as we close to consider what you might be saved for. And, and, and they're looking at your life. The first one is your previous preoccupation. The second is your current concern. And the third is your preferred future. So as we look at Paul, he says in verse 13 and 14, You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's? What was your previous preoccupation? What did you love before? What, what kept you thinking and strategizing? And you loved it so much before. And is it that God, God has called you from it in order to um, now work against it? Is that possible? There might be really great things that you used to be preoccupied with. You still are. But there are some things that might have been at work in your life uh, that, that now you need to move away from. Secondly, your current concern. You see, Peter had been engaging in this practice. He'd been sitting with the Gentiles, being inclusive, um, preached to them, eating with them, which eating with them was a big deal. And then other people come along, Jews, and he backs right off and no one says anything no one gets in his face about it except for paul when paul comes to antioch and he gets in his face about it in front of everybody why because he can see it and it repels him what is your current concern what do you see around you that maybe no one else even sees and you're like are you serious why is no one saying anything about this is there a toxic culture in your workplace is there something awful going on in the classroom where you're like no 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 no. vulnerable people shouldn't be bullied vulnerable Vulnerable people should be advocated for. What is it that, that you seem to notice that maybe nobody else does? Maybe that's what you're saved for. Maybe maybe that's your life's message or your life's mission, or maybe it's this season's message or this season's mission for you to speak out and to speak against. What do you see that other people don't? And finally, the preferred ve- the, perfu- <laughs> the preferred future. You can see what it looks like if this issue no longer exists. You have a visionary view, whereby you have eyes to see what others aren't even looking for yet. You're able to make statements like, in him, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Male nor female, slave nor free. Other people aren't even thinking about it, but you're seeing something that the way that it could be. And it, it, for you, it's not idealism. It's not fanciful. It's not utopian. It's just kingdom. And you think, wow, if the kingdom of God could come to earth like this, it would be amazing. And Paul writes to his apprentice, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he writes this, Calesanto klesos Hagios." He says, you have been saved, but you have been called to a holy calling. And what this phrase means is that you've been invited into the set apartness. You've been called to come away and to do things differently as someone who has been set apart. What is it for you that you've been saved for? And you can see it's because you've been saved from it. How will you respond to the invitation? How will you be a part of what God wants to do on the earth? Because it's beautiful and it's exciting and it's not just saved to heaven one day. It's bringing the kingdom to earth and it's wonderful. So I'm just going to pray two prayers before we continue the conversation. Do you want to be saved? (laughs) Do you want to say, Jesus, I want to go your way and not mine. And secondly, do you want to be called? Do you want to accept the invitation into that set apart calling? And I'd love you to listen to the words and, Um, If you agree, say, God, include me in this prayer. So, Lord, I pray for everyone who would say, yeah, I want to be saved. I want to follow Jesus. Lord, I pray right now that we would put our faith in Jesus. Lord, that you who are the author of our faith, who kick off our faith, Lord, that you would begin to work in us, that Lord, we would turn from our old ways and we would go your way. Lord, we believe that you are the son of God. We believe that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead. And we want you to be our Lord and Savior and take the wheel of our life in Jesus' name. Amen. And Lord, for those of us who are like, yes, I am saved, but I want to live in that calling. I pray that you'd awaken us to the things, Lord, that bother us, that you'd awaken us to the things that we previously were preoccupied, but now repel us, Lord. And I pray that you would quicken those to us and we would begin to, in our own lives, just begin to live in a different way in Jesus' mighty name. Let me finish with this story. A minister once preaching a charity sermon in the west of England began as follows. Many years have elapsed since I was within these walls. On that occasion, there came three young men with the intention not only of scoffing at the minister, but with stones in their pockets for the purpose of assaulting him. After a few words, one of them said with an oath, let us be at him now. But the second replied, no, no, stop till we hear what he makes of this point. The minister went on when the second said, we've heard enough, now throw. But the third interfered, remarking, he is not so foolish as I expected. Let us hear him out. The preacher concluded without having been interrupted. Now mark me, of these three young men, one was executed for forgery. The second lies under sentence of death for murder. The third, through the infinite mercy of God, now addresses you. Listen to him. That's what God can do when he saves us from something and for something